Welcome to Delve. Our episode is based in the town of Ambleside, one of the busiest places in the Lake District. We will be exploring the history of the town with Jane Renouf of the Ambleside Oral History Group and also hearing some of the interviews from their archive. We will consider the enduring pull of the fells, speaking to mountain leader Nicola Carter, who tells us that when we just delve a little deeper off the beaten track, our experiences begin to broaden. The raven flew above the screes, above the rocks, where the bare bones of the mountain broke through the skin, and rain trickled to the black tan, and lichen grew like gangrene on the splintered knuckles. The raven flew down the long wedge of the dale, above the upland dikes, and slate and cobble walls piled high against the high waves of the fells. Ambleside bustles with people, outdoor shops and cafes. It's hard to imagine it ever having been anything else. Above the town is Wandsfell Pike, from which water seeps, then trickles, before eventually pouring into Stock Gill, hurrying through the town as Stock Back. When you sit halfway up Wandsfell, Ambleside looks quite far away. You can barely hear the town at all. The edges are indistinct, almost scattered, single houses forced up the hillsides around, and often there is a moment of quiet. The verse you heard at the start is Norman Nicholson, one of Cumbria's most overlooked poets. For as we shall see in this and in our coming episodes, the Lake's poets were not the only writers sourcing inspiration from these falls. Far from it. Ambleside has evidence of ancient history, not just Roman occupation, but Bronze Age. The Ambleside Horde, discovered in a bog by young men, peat cutters, in 1741. The Horde was documented by the fabulously named Peregrine Bertie, who owned the estate it was on. It is thought to be around 4,000 to 5,000 years old. The Horde, made up of swords and weapons, was bound together in a bundle, two feet under the peat. Bertie wrote in a letter, I had them off the person who took them out the ground. They were then so sharp as to cut their fingers. But since, they have tried the metal of them so often on every oak gable in the parish that they have a little notched and blunted them. Although the thought of pristine Bronze Age swords being sullied is awful, Summoning retrospective annoyance with the 18th century burners seems pointless and mean-spirited. Plus, the picture of them charging around Ambleside trying out their newly acquired Bronze Age sword on everything in sight has a somewhat endearing quality. The sharpness of the swords points to them being ceremonial, especially given their submersion in a bog. Accounts of the hoard were published in the late 1700s And then, it disappeared, the whole hoard. Remaining missing for two centuries, it was subsequently found in 1977 
when unidentified artefacts in photographs were compared with Bertie's original drawings. Somehow the hoard had entered the Royal Collection for many years being on private display at Windsor Castle. It has since been given to the British Museum. As well as evidence of Bronze Age activity, Ambleside has a Roman fort. Much has been written on the Roman era and legacy in Cumbria where Hadrian's Wall split the island in half. The roads, forts and mile castles have changed the face of the land for good. Ambleside Roman Fort is known and often listed as Galava, but as we are aware, things are not always this simple. There were two forts listed in Roman records, Galava meaning strong flowing stream, and Clanaventa meaning shore or field. Clanaventa is more fitting with the land just off Waterhead at the bottom of Ambleside, where the fort is. As a result, some historians refer to it as such. Built around 79 AD, initially a timber fort, ceramic deposits show abandonment for around a century previously to rebuilding in stone in the 2nd century. Local historian R.G. Collingwood excavated the present remains, including gates, a commanding officer's house, granaries and headquarters. In 2016, laser technology identified a road to Carlisle from the fort. Ambleside Old Town was mainly built using stone from the Roman fort, not long after the Roman retreat. By the 6th and 7th century, the town had expanded. After the dissolution of the monasteries, the land around the area was split up into small properties, which by 1550 were owned or rented by the local population. Cumbria had, and has, many small holdings owned by local farmers, rather than being rented, which is traditional in other parts of Britain. During the medieval period, many people in Ambleside made a living burning charcoal. Charcoal was used to gain high enough temperatures for smelting ores, and also used to produce gunpowder, which in turn was used in the slate quarries around the town. The process took days to complete. Often workers would live in the woods to ensure fires did not go out. Slate quarries were important to local economy. The material was used for most domestic buildings in the vicinity. The most famous and smallest property in Ambleside is built from local slate. Bridge House, located on a small bridge over Stock Beck. The Braithwaite's, a local family, built the first house there to access their lands on either side of Stock Beck and Star Apples. This tiny house, one room up and one down, was built around 300 years ago. A good example of Cumbrian vernacular buildings, complete with outdoor stairs. It was purchased by residents and donated to the National Trust in 1926. It once housed a family of eight and for a time was a cobbler's. Stock Gill, which Stock Beck runs through, was the focus for the town at one point, having many fulling mills. Ambleside was, like Grasmere, a place where wool was produced. Only Ambleside had the means to function as an industrial centre. In 1650, Ambleside gained a charter market which Grasmere had failed to obtain. The town's marketplace became the commercial centre for both the agriculture and wool trade in the area before Kendall grew in prosperity. A cattle fair was held twice a year, although it was dismissed by local cattle trader Daniel Fleming as being for wool and sheep more than cattle. The fair still exists in a reduced format held at the auction mart near Kendall in September, 
still called the Ambleside Fair, despite the location. Ambleside has a show similar to Grasmere's. The concept of these events has shifted throughout the years. Fairs were cultural and social events, joyous occasions, usually with the trading focus, be it sheep or cattle. The only remaining event in Cumbria today is the Appleby Horse Fair. Attracting around 40,000 people, it's part of cultural heritage, particularly for the travelling community. Horse trading may be the purpose, but it has stalls where you can buy almost anything. Clothes, crockery, horse supplies, and then events in the evening. This is as the fairs traditionally were. A way for people to conduct business, pick up what they needed, and where a whole community met. People may only see certain people year on year at Appleby. An old belief exists that if horses are not traded on the sands, the fair won't take place again. This is incorrect, based on charter market rules, which the fair did not ever come under the jurisdiction of. However, it's become folklore. And as a result, in 2020, six participants went to Appleby and traded a horse despite the overall event being cancelled due to coronavirus. Our song is Copshaholm Fair. Copshaholm is another name for Newcastleton, a town on the border of England and Scotland. The song was written by David Anderson from Newcastleton in 1830 about the annual workers' hiring fair last held in 1912 where farm labourers and other workers could travel to obtain work for the coming season. One cultural permeation from hiring fairs is the depiction of male farm labourers with a piece of grass in their mouth. Labourers at hiring fairs would carry a symbol of their particular skill for prospective employers. Shepherds put wool on their hats or carried crooks, milkmaids a stool and general labourers had grass in their hats or mouths. We are lucky that our song sets out not just the scene of the fair, complete with references to gingerbread stands, but it also describes the act of hiring someone and then the evening celebrations. It's long, so only half of it is here, but the rest is available on our YouTube channel.
The words are set to the tune of a Scottish song called The Wild Hills of Wanney and gives us a detailed insight into fairs in the area. In the 19th and early 20th century, many residents in Ambleside were prominent writers. In the 19th century, Ambleside started to grow and change thanks to the new railway, which we'll examine later in the series. People started to move up from southern Britain. The movement of the middle and upper classes to Ambleside included a large number of high-profile thinkers. In that vein, Ambleside benefited from three notable figures, all born elsewhere but settled in Ambleside. Charlotte Mason, a progressive educationalist inspired by John Ruskin, Mary Louise Armit, a polymath, and Harriet Martineau, a political commentator, cited as the first female sociologist. Mary Armit was a strong figure in the Ambleside community. At school, she studied music and natural history before graduating from the Mechanics Institute in Manchester. A forerunner of UMIST, the University of Manchester's Institute of Science and Technology. With an inheritance, Mary and her sisters established a school in Eccles. They were teenagers. The eldest pupil was 14, a year younger than Mary. In Cumbria, she wrote extensively on local history, which was used to research earlier episodes of this series. Armit funded a library in 1909, incorporating the Ambleside Book Trust and an earlier library founded by John Ruskin. The current library was opened by Canon Ronsley in 1912 after her death. William Healis, Beatrix Potter's husband, served on the committee. The library houses an extensive collection of local writers, including Potter, as well as the Fell and Rock Climbing Society's collection. Charlotte Mason was a founding member, and the current library sits in the grounds of the teaching college she established, now part of the University of Cumbria. Harriet Martineau settled in Ambleside in 1845, living there until her death in 1876. Partially deaf from childhood, she spent six years of her adult life incapacitated with a uterine tumour, shaping her perception of the female experience. Writing Life in the Sick Room, an exploration of how patients can use illness to reflect and progress, she promoted patients being in full control of their space. Her doctors and critics dismissed it as dangerous, contending women should never have positions of control, especially in illness. Friends with the Brontes, Dickens, Wordsworth and Florence Nightingale, Martineau wrote many books and economic papers, including a popular guide to the lakes. A fervent secularist, she supported Darwin, whose brother she had once been romantically involved with, believing religious notions of sin caused suffering within society. She refused governmental help for illness, fearing it would rob her of the opportunity to comment politically. Until 2019, the knoll, the house she built in Ambleside, housed Barbara Todd and Maureen Cahoon. Todd was an actress and publisher of Sappho magazine. Cahoon was an MP who campaigned for the presence of childcare in the Houses of Parliament and attempted to decriminalise prostitution in the late 1970s. Before her death, Todd wrote a book on Martineau. In the late Victorian era, a shift in the way that women were perceived began. Women like the ones we've discussed started to benefit from an acceptance within certain factions of society. 
This did not stop critics belittling their ideas, citing their sex, as happened with Harriet Martineau. But this change only related to women who could essentially prove themselves, who were academically gifted and rich enough to have access to schooling, enabling them to write books or participate in academic discussions. This shift did not impact the lower classes in the same way. The women we have looked at here were aware of that and were all interested in social reform. Harriet Martineau was committed to improving things for ordinary people in Ambleside. She created there the first building society in the north of England, the Windermere Benefit Building Society, in part to fund housing. Though this was not wholly successful, the housing association she founded is still running today. She ran her own farm and frequently lectured to people in Ambleside, particularly concerned with the education of women throughout her life. These women who did not benefit from education, those in the lower classes, had a very different experience. In Ambleside, with fabric production dwindling, roles for women in industry had tapered off. But the bigger houses built by those relocating, meant that going into service became an available option for women and one that was a way to help bring in some small amount of money to the family. In Ambleside, local women's lives became intertwined with the female thinkers that we have discussed. We are going to hear an extract from an interview from the Ambleside Oral History Group from a lady called Elsie Cooper, born in 1908, whose mother had worked in some of the larger houses in the area, including for Mary Armit and her sister. And they worked for Miss Armit uh, probably around the turn of the century. Yes, yes. That's right. And your mother was 14 when she, yes. went, when she went to work. After she left school. After she left mm. school at 14. Mm. And what was it like working for the Armit sisters? Well... The Armit, Miss Armit was a lovely lady, and uh, my mother was very fond of her. And Miss Armit used to lend mother books to read, which was lovely for my mother because, with, coming from a big family, she didn't get enough reading. And uh, Miss Armit mothered her. And she, she wasn't there a very long while because, you see, she'd have to move on if she wouldn't get enough money. To keep her going, probably. I wonder if she... You don't know how much sort of money she was paid, do you? What would be the sort of wage? Oh, it wouldn't be very much. Might have been... Ten shillings a week? Oh, no, it wouldn't be that. Five shillings a week? It would be about that. About five shillings a week? It might not have been that. Goodness. But you got kept, you see. Yes. Yes. And would she have to work from morning till night? Oh, she would be living... And work from six o'clock in the morning. Oh yes, yes, she would. Uh, it wouldn't be hard, but she'd be looking after Miss Harmit. Do you think she was the only? M- yes, she was the only st- maid. She was the only maid they had. Yeah, I think so. So she would have to do all the jobs, but she was very happy. And Miss Harmit was a very, very well thought of lady That's in good. that district. Yes. I wonder if you have any, if she has any feeling. Were they, did they have any money, the Armit sisters, or were they fairly poor? No, I should think they wouldn't be very well off. I don't think so. No. I wouldn't think so. Otherwise, she'd have engaged more maids, wouldn't she? Yes. 
So uh, she was really, your mother was made of all work yes. and did the cleaning. She must have been because I've never, uh, I've never mentioned anyone else. Yes. And uh, how long do you think she stayed with the Arvid oh, sisters? It wouldn't be, I really don't know, perhaps two years. Might have been two years. To better herself? Yes. I think that she must have gone to Brantwood. Did she? Yeah. And uh, her sister, they kept two maids, I think. Perhaps, yes, they kept two maids, Brantwood. But mother worked for the Collinwoods. Right. You know. Yes. Um, because John Ruskin would be dead by then. Ruskin, yes. He'd and be the dead. And was the great friends of yes, yes, Ruskin. Yes. Well, my great aunt worked for Ruskin. Did she? Yes. Yes. And I couldn't... She was very old. I, I never had much conversation with her, but I knew that she worked for Ruskin. Yes. And uh, when she left, he gave her a lovely little writing desk. Did he? Yes. I'm sure she must have treasured that. Yes. Yeah. So your mother went on to work for the Collingwoods? Yes. And they were, was that, they were poor. Were they? They were poor, but they had to keep up a standard, you know. And um, my mother and Miss Auntie, they really weren't very well catered for. You know, they didn't really feed them terribly well. <laughs> they had to... Economised, probably, mm -hmm. and uh, that was the way of things. And the Collinwoods were very... Uh, he was. He did a bit of painting, but he was never very much. He didn't make anything of it. And uh, my auntie used to pinch his pants. <laughs> did she... <laughs> Want to paint pictures herself? Yeah, well, m m my auntie was a bit uh, artistic. Was she? And uh, she didn't have any conscience because she said, well, they pinch us with, for food. I don't see why I can't have some of these paints. Did he find out? <laughs> no, no. I suppose she was very diplomatic. <laughs> and... Uh, so it was really quite a hard time. Then. Yes, yes. But then your mother got married. Yes. And stopped. I think she must have been married when she left Brantwood. Yes, she was married at 20. The Collingwoods mentioned in the interview are the family of the historian who excavated the Roman fort. And we also heard again the name of John Ruskin. Ruskin was also conscious that women in the Lake District did not have access to employment, relying on income from their husbands. He wanted to revive cottage industry, particularly linen production, as well as fabric from wool. In the late 17th to early 18th century, flax and hemp were grown in the Lake District to make a linen called Hardensark. Sark is from the Old Norse for shirt, but this would have been an outer garment, slightly water-resistant. Ruskin believed women should make their own pin money, the name given for money used for hairpins and personal effects. In 1883, he and friend Albert Fleming started to try and revive linen material making, focusing on Skelworth Bridge between Ambleside and Langdale. 
The local story is that they couldn't find a working spinning wheel to demonstrate on and had to impart one from the Isle of Man, and only one of the older ladies could remember how to spin when it arrived. Ruskin brought lace patterns from Italy for the women to use and Fleming bought a loom and wool at Kendall. Ruskin wrote to friends to promote the lace. Ruskin lace techniques are still taught today. Due to its development, it is different to other laces because none of the women involved in the initial pieces were skilled. They invented techniques to emulate patterns. What they produced was something different. Neither the lace nor the embroider's guild accepted Ruskin lace, each claiming their methods belonged to the other technique. There are many superstitions and folklore related to clothes and cleaning, often tied into distinct calendar events such as it being unlucky to wash clothes on New Year's Day. But here in Cumbria is a specific creature in folklore that helps to clean. The popular enduring myth throughout the UK is that fairies could help with domestic chores. In Cumbria, early folklore researchers suspected there was a general belief in fairies, but felt they were not trusted enough to be told about the beliefs or other participants themselves were embarrassed about it. In a village in Cumbria in the 1600s, there were four instances of deaths recorded due to being frightened to death by fairies. Proof that historically the belief was ingrained and accepted. Several local folk tales relate to fairies, but often fairies take on more of a semi divine human form than in other counties where the traditional image of a smaller being still prevails. Rather than fairies helping in the house, a throb thrush or a dobby, sometimes called a hob thrush, was the friend of householders. This extended up to the Scottish borders. Benevolent to householders and farmers, the throb thrush helped in the kitchen and the farmyard, only requiring milk or cream in return. Sometimes they would also churn cream overnight. Occasionally these helpers could turn on their owners, particularly if they felt their owner was lazy, in which case they became more like a boggart or a boggle, a particularly spiteful creature who could wreak havoc on a household. Dobbies, which can be another name for ghosts or throb thrushes, could be released from service by giving them a new set of clothes or a coat. For anyone that noted the name Dobby, he is the same as a Harry Potter character, who is a house elf in the books, and house elves can be released by the same mechanism of giving them clothes, obviously inspired by the Cumbrian Dobby. Folklore is passed through oral traditions, something we have been exploring throughout the series. We are now going to speak Jane Renouf of the Ambleside Oral History Group, who will explain to us why the Oral History Group was started and what they have achieved. The group was started in 1976 by Cynthia Thompson. And Cynthia was the librarian in charge at Ambleside Library. She recognised the fact that in all the valleys around her, old customs and traditions and jobs were gradually disappearing. And the whole area was changing. The influence of uh, mass media, television, foreign travel, um, more people had cars. And things were changing so quickly that she felt that it was important to record the memories of the very oldest people, and what they could remember, before it was lost forever. And it really started in a very simple way with a couple of reel-to-reel tape recorders. And right from the beginning, we transcribed everything into written documents that we recorded. 
And we just wanted to capture the importance of capturing those memories before they were gone, of life how it used to be. As we interviewed, we started with the oldest people first. And we gradually, over the years and the generations, we built up what has become an extraordinary detailed social history. It's probably Mm -hmm. one of the most detailed social histories in any rural area in Britain, actually, because we started oral history before a lot of people had even heard of it. As the years went by for us, we started off with, as I said, with our oldest people in the early 1900s, and then it was the 1920s, and then the 1930s. Quite an honour. You know, when you interview somebody, they, they don't, you don't just go into their houses to interview them you go into their minds, you go into their souls, you go into their memories and their hearts. And you have to tread with care and not trample. You've got to be always respectful of those memories. We we don't talk on the tapes. There's very little of us on the recordings. Because when we interview, if you ask somebody to tell you about something, they will. If you ask lots of leading questions and then you agree with them, oh, that happened to me, oh, I know what you mean. We don't want that. We want them to tell us. So we're quite silent. So you use your face to express what your what your feelings are. You know, you that rapport, the empathy that you build up has got to be through facial expression without having to say anything or interrupt or just a nod to say that you're listening is all that it takes. And gradually our interviewers get better and better at it so that there's Mm. as little of us and as much of our interviewees. Jane talks about what techniques they use to get the details of people's lives. And to do that, we ask them lots of everyday questions about their lives, like what they ate, how they did their shopping, who made their clothes. Uh, And the oldest people that we interviewed in their 90s gave us first-time memories of the lakes and the Lake District and this area in from sort of 1870s, 1880s onwards. For example, we might say to somebody, um, did you go to church on Sunday? And the answer might be yes. So that's a you know, stop reply. But if I said to them, tell me, what did you do on Sunday? Well, first of all, we polished all the boots and then my mother made the bread and we eventually went to... You know, it, it, it's the way that you do it sometimes to to invite people to tell you small details about their lives. Um, I think I did the first interview in January 1977 with a lady who was 99 years old at the time, and I was absolutely hooked right from the beginning. Jane explained how the resources become a valuable asset to historians. A, a group of social historians came across us and found that we had some fascinating details about how country people were sustained during the First World War um, in the way of food. How, wh- where did they get their food from? You know, the, the, the men were away at the front. The women were helping mm. on the farms, that sort of thing, what people ate. And they were absolutely delighted to find this little treasure. And since then, we work quite frequently with social historians from various universities who just stumble mm. across us and find that mm. we've got treasure trove of memories. Jane talks about the evacuees to the lakes during the Second World War and the impact of that on the local community. In the 1940s, and the large numbers of children who were evacuated to the lakes, and that changed 
the order of things completely. And it wasn't a hard war up here in terms of being bombed. It was quite safe. Uh, but it was just changed by, with the Royal College of Art, for example, evacuated their students up to Ambleside. And that was uh, gave rise to lots of creativity in the in the village. That's how we got the rush-bearing mule in St Mary's Church because it was done by a student from the Royal College of Art in 1944. Uh, and whole schools came here, evacuated. And we had half-time schools, so the locals would go to school in the morning and the evacuated children were taught in the afternoon. So it was sort of part-time teaching, really, or part-time schooling, rather. She taught through the 50s and the impact of tourism. And then the 1950s, and the return, very austere to start with, but gradually, with the advent of um, the motor car, families had their first car, and they started to come by car to the Lake District rather than on coaches or on trains. So the first traffic jams in the lakes, um, it, the bank holidays particularly, and the litter, you wouldn't believe it. I was talking to a park ranger years ago. Um, he was the first National Park Ranger in 1952, I think, and he described the backlog of litter that they found in the in tarns, in Little Lake District tarns. Mm. They just chucked all their tin cans and all their camping equipment. It was all in the bottom of these little tarns. So their first job was to clear up and clean up the, the lake, the lake themselves from the hikers and walkers of the 1920s and 30s, which mm. was quite an eye-opener to me. The oral history group still record oral histories today. Jane discusses why they do this, as well as explaining how you can access the resource if you'd like to. And you could say, well, is that really necessary? People have video cameras, people have got iPhones, they phone it as it happens. We think there's still a great value in in listening to people talking about things. Uh, contemporary, certainly. But the more detailed interview gives us time to reflect and ask more questions about it. It's not just a you know sound bite. It's much, much more than that. And we've got about 550 interviews in our archive, but some of them are double interviews. So we went back and did the same people again because they had more to tell us. And every single one of them is there on our website, accessible online to read. So you don't have to listen to them in actual time in real time, um, if you come and visit our website, which is www.aohg.org.uk, if you click on search the archive, there is a an email that you just fill in that comes to us, you submit it, and we give you free, unlimited access to the interviews. But even better than that, we have um, a retrieval system, which if you just type in one word um, on the search bar, it'll come up with every interview with that word in it so you can find what you're looking for. Jane gives us her impression on how the first influx of second homeowners impacted on the lakes. We think of it as a resort, as somewhere you come, you know, it's an adventure playground. It's, mm-hmm. it's um, I don't know, I, I've got nothing against that at all. It's great to share the National Park with everybody that needs the fresh air and the exercise and the, and the adventure and the excitement. But it's also been such a creative area, such a such a cordon of ideas came from here. And this, I think it really comes from, it stems from this 
coterie of intelligentsia that gathered here in the early 1900s because they had second homes. And they set up things like the Army Library um, in Ambleside, and they would have meetings and discussions together. And it was a sort of hothouse of ideology. Um, Beatrix Potter was a member. Um, and so many influential people, Harriet Martineau, political um, columnist and um, abolitionist in the earlier years before then, um, and the sort of people that were, uh, yeah, they had big houses and they had money, but they were government ministers with second homes up here um, and all sorts of, I think it starts from there, the sort of ideas thing, all sorts of very well-educated people came here. It is to the detriment of a number of great writers and poets of the Lake District that discussions on writing in Cumbria frequently focus on the Lakes poets, eclipsing those whose work is of equal standing. If the Lakes poets set the scene for the perception of Cumbria, Norman Nicholson's poetry springs from that, and in respect of language, the quality of the representation is so efficient and executed with such grace, it's breathtaking. So this is the river, cold and still as steel, curved round the banks and boulders, small cascades are bent like blades of ploughs and stand as stiffly, unceasing movement now is grey and steady as the dead stone, the roots of thorns are plated with the wetness and lichens nailed on the rocks like lead, there's not a clipping, even of ragwort's faded hair, left in this winter water. We heard at the start of this episode his poem The Raven, the brutal imagery of the mountain breaking out of its skin, the harsh environment. Nicholson lived in Millham, just outside of the National Park, writing on what surrounded him. Receiving an OBE for his work, his poems project Cumbria, sometimes industrial, sometimes bleak and always real. A huge influence on younger poets, he was in correspondence with Seamus Heaney, Philip Larkin and Ted Hughes, whose favourite English teacher was a close friend of Nicholson. Hughes wrote the poem, Turn for Him, and the following poem is by Seamus Heaney, written for and about him. Those Cumbrian phonetics cracked like a plated whip until the slack, nostalgic amble in me trotted on the paved margin of my own Blackpool. Dublin Blackpool, Dub, Lynn, that is yours and mine as well. The Love of Walking, passed to another poet. At several points in this series, we've discussed walking the landscape, but only touched on the subject of it as a sport of mountaineering. We are going to listen, thanks to the Ambleside Oral History Group, to the voice of William Heaton Cooper, the landscape artist who we looked at in episode two. You may recall that he was president of the Fell and Rock Climber Society. Then we got to onto this at the end of this tiny little pulpit and I started to go up and I got so far and came across an overhang and uh, so I came down and uh, Gordon Osmerson had a go and he couldn't do it and he couldn't get down so this girl sat on my feet and I sort of lay out over space and fielded him as he dropped <laughs> and we, uh, eventually, we did play. We did one of the Gimmer kinds, which was quite uh, quite an effort. We'd never done anything before, and 
they were so anxious about each other that day that uh, in the evening he proposed to her and was accepted. <laughs> <laughs> that was the climax of the... Is that the Brigadier on it? Yes, it's, a, yes, it's still a, one of my best friends, both of them. You were only 17 then, were you? I was, must have been about 17 or 18, I suppose. How long have you been climbing then? Uh, never. I've never been on a rope. Because <laughs> my parents uh, definitely uh, forbade me to go. They wouldn't let it. It was entirely wrong, because if I'd only started in the right way, I wouldn't have done such a silly thing. Actually, we uh, did this climb on Gimmer, and then down, went over to Paviark, and uh, up Raken Chimney, which is a VD, I think, and that seemed like walking along the road after Giver, but, but after that we did quite a lot of climbing together for many years. He uh, became so keen that he was uh, in the survey of India and they gave him any new peak that was climbed, like Nanda Devi, he had to go and survey it. So he had a lot of uh, um, Himalayan experience. When I go with him over to see Chris Bonington, they always get on to these peaks and swap photographs. Uh, they know quite a lot of the same uh, country, of course. That must be very interesting, being the first one to survey. Yes, it must be very interesting, being the first one to survey. Yes, yes, uh, and Nanda uh, Davy. Uh, actually, uh, Gordon took uh, Sherpas with him to uh, survey the peak, while Tillman and Shipton were climbing the mountain. And one of the Sherpas on the way down got ill, and so Gordon carried him on his back part of the way down and let him share his tent. And this Sherpa's name was Sherpa Tensing. <laughs> it's his first expedition. So Tensing has never forgotten this. Uh, he uh, wrote a book called Man of Everest, remember that? And, uh, he mentions that the first Englishman he met was uh, Major Osmondston, so he had a, an idea of Englishmen based on uh, Gordon. Oh. Uh, when uh, Tenson came to stay with John Hunt and Henley, um, we said to Gordon, why don't you uh, ring, uh, ring him up? And Gordon said, oh, I don't think he'd remember me, so he rang up and uh, Tenson said, oh, you must come at once. We'll meet you tomorrow on the, the, at Henley Station. So we pushed Gordon into a train. John and uh, Tensing met him at Henley, and they walked two miles to their home along the towpath. At one point, Tensing insisted on uh, climbing on Gordon's back and having a photograph taken. <laughs> If you were not already familiar with Tenzing Norgay, he was Edmund Hillary's climbing partner the first expedition to scale Everest. Without this rescue in early life, it's possible we would not know the name of either Norgay or Hillary, as there have been many failed attempts on the summit. Everest was also climbed by Chris Bonington, one of the people mentioned in the interview, and he was the lead in many important climbs. He lives in the Lake District, often using it to help train for challenging expeditions. The Lake District attracts some who, having seen pictures of fells or heard stories of expeditions, come to walk. 
Hiking there can seem less challenging than Scotland's climbs, but this is not necessarily the case. Mountain rescue teams are frequently called a situation of climbers in trouble or caused by the ill-prepared or parties who've set off in adverse weather. 2020 is the 50th anniversary of the Langdale and Ambleside Mountain Rescue. Based in Ambleside near Stockgill, their call-out log is testament to the dangers of the fells and being underprepared. For 2020, it includes a runner attempting the Fairfield Horseshoe in hostile weather. Six mountain bikers warned the weather was bad, but who chose to continue? And two men lost in darkness without a map. They had an app identifying their location as Bolivia. Many walkers are fixated on the prize, the goal of the summit. This extends to a practice known as mountain bagging, where there are attempts to climb all of the peaks in a range or those identified in a particular group. In the lakes, that experience is linked to the writer and walker, Alfred Wainwright. Wainwright identified groups of foals in his series of books on the ranges, which people still use to walk today. Getting to the top is part of the experience. Wainwright, while enjoying the summer, was also a believer in the experience of the climb. He writes in his book, The Western Falls. The fleeting hour of life of those who love the hills is quickly spent, but the hills are eternal. Always there will be the lonely ridge, the dancing beck, the silent forest. Always there will be the exhilaration of the summits. These are for the seeking, and for those who seek and find while there is still time will be blessed both in mind and body. The understated mental experience of the fells. Not the elation, relief and accomplishment of summits, but the range of experience that can be achieved from simply being in the fells is vast. Mountain leader Nicola Carter works taking groups up to the mountains in the lakes at climbing centres and has recently worked on the harness to Via Ferrata. She talks to us about her early experiences of walking the fells. Um, I guess I was introduced to the fells, like in the normal way that you would be as a, a young young kid in Cumbria. So maybe family day trips and residential experiences with school. My, my dad would have been really, really excited. Get us really early and get us all up, try to get us all together and to get a really great early start so he could go and climb whatever fell he sort of set his sights on and I just remember that flap <laughs> being <laughs> quite hard work um, and then yeah. the drive up there would be really an erratic sort of drive so it's just like and the roads up there are quite twisty anyway and it might he kind of drove quite quickly and then would slow down for corners so I'd end up feeling really travel sick in the back of the car and I'd be like looking out of the window at this landscape going past and I would just be thinking, wow, it looks really bleak. It looks really grey. Because mm. um, it seemed always to be really overcast days that we would go there. Nick also chatted about the point in her life where these early experiences shifted. And I suddenly realised that it was a beautiful place. Kind of woke up and was like, oh, OK. I'm going to drive my car to the Lake District and, and then do a foul. Uh, so I started foul walking, taking that decision mm. myself for what was important thing, but also just seeing the fells in complete contrast to this 15 years of just being away from any kind of 
imagined wild landscapes, living a really safe life, I mm. think. One where it was completely monotonous and grey, really. Um, and the, then the contrast for what I saw of the Lake District as an adult, it seemed very green and blue and wild, uh, and even though it, it, you know, it's completely managed landscape. To my eyes at that point, it, feel, it seemed really wild and untamed and it seemed like somewhere that I could go test my mm. physical limits, test my mental limits. And that wasn't something that I'd been doing really at all in the city. It was all very like tame. Six or seven years ago, I guess, I've gotten completely addicted to the mountain mm. environment being in the mountains made me think like, oh, you know, am I am I fit enough to be here? Am I strong enough to be here? Can I confidently navigate myself off this hillside? Can I definitely be confident in my own like risk assessment or decision making to be able to go up this like steep ground? Can I mm. can I also take my mates up there, you know, can I can I handle that? And that was um it's quite compelling I think as an as an adult. So I think it helped me deal with things like grief feelings of like mm. mild mental illness like anxiety and depression those sort of things I feel like mm. I can go into my general life and be a, a lot sort of stronger I guess through the, through the experiences mm. that I've had in the fells um, and learning to, to mount, be a mountaineer I guess. Nick explains how what she gains from being in the fells has changed over time. It's not what I get from it anymore basically um, mm. I think that was uh, initially like absolutely fascinating to me to to have those kind of questions like seek out somewhere that's really remote and quiet uh, so a really lesser known scramble route up a mountain let's say or what I really love is gill scrambling right now um, when the the gills are, are kind of springtime and, and they're just like in the low levels of water and all of the the flowers are starting to open up. I really enjoy that because you barely see anyone else. I like the solitude, mm. I guess. I, I barely see anybody else when I'm gill scrambling. And in the gills, you can see so much more of the mountain flora and fauna than you will do on, on the fell side generally, mm. um, mostly because the sheep can't or don't get down into the gills. So I really like... Mm that experience of learning about what flora and fauna there would normally be on the south. Little things like sitting to watch the mist come out of a valley. Um, if mm. I'm wild camping on a summit, let's say, just it's so lovely just to get up 15 minutes earlier than I might have done to start moving and just sit there and watch the mist come out of the valley or just take a break from the movement side of gill scrambling and just listen to the waterfall and mm. the cascade and how it hits. Um, There's kind of way the tone changes when it, it hits the deeper part of the water or just creeping along and then finding, oh, there's a little bit of juniper and, and going to crush it in your fingers, you know, and smelling that lovely, like, mm. gin. Her perspective is stirring. Links with the mental experience of being in the fells is not discussed in the same way that the exhilaration of climbing to the top is. In Cumbria, due to the terrain, it is not just people that can struggle with the sense. On the main road at Ambleside, you can get onto a road named The Struggle, which takes you, eventually, onto the Kirkston Pass. 
named after the Kirkstone that the stands suggested to look like a church steeple. The Kirkstone Pass is nearly 1,500 feet at its highest point. And it is here that we find our folktale. Ruth Ray needed to get from Patterdale to Ambleside. She had had word her father was poorly. She had to make the journey over Coxton Pass, and she saw that day was cold. She wrapped her baby up, not just in her usual blankets, but adding more. She set off in the frosty air and, and began the climb up. Halfway up, as often occurs, the weather suddenly turned. The snow fell in sheets and she became lost. Her husband waited as home as long as he could, but when it became clear she was not coming back, he followed the pass up, looking everywhere for her. The weather got worse and worse, and after a time her husband also became lost himself. He staggered around the route near St Raven's Edge, searching through the blizzard. A sheepdog appeared, which led him safely back to his farmhouse. In the morning, the weather had calmed and Ruth's husband, the farmer and the dog set off to look for Ruth and her baby. In the distance, the dog barked. They had found them. Getting closer, it became obvious that Ruth was dead. But thanks to her careful wrapping, and by chance, her baby survived. In the years following, many travellers reported seeing a woman walking in the pass, who warned them they were not wrapped up warm enough. It is said she also haunts the Kirkston Inn halfway up the pass. We are going to leave the town of Ambleside, heading on our journey where our next stop will be Troutbeck Bridge. Far less famous than the other villages so far, we now know well of course that the smallest places can hold the most substantial of stories and in the case of Troutbeck Bridge, this couldn't be more accurate. We'll be rejoined by Jane Renerf and also speak again to Sue Allen. We will end with the words of another mountaineer who, like Nicola, saw and felt the value of the quiet, contemplative experience over the mountain as an opponent to be triumphed. Nan Shepherd. So my journey into experience began. It was a journey always for fun with no motive beyond that I wanted it. But at first I was seeking only sensuous gratification, the sensation of height, the sensation of movement, the sensation of speed, the sensation of distance, the sensation of effort, the sensation of ease, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. I was not interested in the mountain for itself, but for its effect upon me as Puss caresses not the man, but herself against the man's trouser leg. But as I grew older, and less self-sufficient, I began to discover the mountain in itself. Everything became good to me. Its contours, its colours, its waters, its rocks, flowers and birds. This process has taken many years, and is not yet complete. Knowing another is endless, and I have discovered that man's experience of them enlarges rock, flower, bird. The thing to be known grows with the knowing. Mm -hmm.